outrider is a cowhand who rides away from the herd to keep the cows from straying. It's also someone who rides alongside or out in front of a vehicle or a parade, leading the way or protecting the main body. To paraphrase from the book Outrider by the poet Anne Waldman, a literary outrider is not an outsider, but someone, perhaps even an outlaw, who rides parallel to the mainstream, is the shadow and the conscience of the mainstream, is a spiritual insider practiced in negative capability, someone who travels where the mainstream can't go. Welcome to the Outrider Podcast, a show for the literary outrider. This episode, Outrider Live, Words and Music, was recorded in front of a live audience and features poetry and prose by me, your host, Jason Quinn Malott, and live music by Wichita band The Ezrez. If you like what you hear, be sure to follow us and give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, and I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome, everybody, to the first ever live Outrider podcast. It's called Outrider Live, words and music featuring me and the Ezra's. So thank you first, Sean and Maria, for letting us use this space and for the munchies and everything. Uh, so for those of you who don't know, and this will probably be most of the people listening when we air the podcast. I've been doing the Outrider podcast since 2013, mostly as a uh, conversational show with writers I know um, and admire. So excuse me for a moment while I name drop. Um, I've interviewed uh, Brian Ferry. He's the author of the 2012 Stonewall Honor Book, With or Without You, the award-winning middle grade series, The Vinge Keep Prophecies, and most recently, The Secret of Dread Willow Carse. Um, I've talked with Emily St. John Mandel, whose fourth novel, Station Eleven, was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Colin Dickey, whose most recent book was about haunted America called Ghostland, and Peter Guy, whose most recent novel is Wintering. I've also talked to Kansas-born poet and undergrad classmate Ed Skoog. Um, also talked to Laird Hunt, whose novel Never Home was a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award in 2013. His next novel, In the House in the Dark of the Woods, is due in October. Um, Duncan Barlow, a fellow Naropa classmate and author of, most recently, The City Awake. He's also the publisher of Astrophil Press and a founding member of Louisville indie punk band's Endpoint, By the Grace of God and Others. And then there was Andrea Portes, Paul's Tatongi, the poet Taylor Molly, and Scott Phillips, as well as a number of regional writers of note like Troy James Weaver, Teresa Romaine, Darren Dufresne, and the Kansas City-based writer, director, producer, and my one-time college roommate, David Wayne Reed, whose live storytelling event, Shelf Life, is quite popular in Kansas City. You can find it on SoundCloud. He also has a uh, short film called Eternal Harvest that is an official selection of the 2018 Kovalite International Film Festival. And that movie will also be traveling the country in 2020 as part of a, a multimedia exhibition at museums and libraries. Now, recently, I've been experimenting with some things for the podcast. Last year um, was an extended series of conversations with uh, the Birmingham-based poet Stephen McClurg about writing and resistance in the era of economic instability and Trump. Earlier this year, I did a series on James Joyce's Ulysses with the uh, San Francisco-based poet Delia Tramontina. And right now, I'm finishing up a series on detective and crime fiction with as yet undiscovered writers Todd Robbins and Paul Fecto. And that should be out in October. And now we're here tonight uh, for this idea that Sean Craver and I have been chatting about for about a year now. <laughs> a live event recorded for the podcast that features writers and musicians on stage together. Now it was inspired by a touring show that the late writer Bobby Louise Hawkins did with folk singers Rosalie Sorrells and Terry Garthwaite that was recorded live at the Great American Music Hall and you can find that on iTunes. Our current plan is to try to do six of these a year, each one featuring a different writer paired with a musical act, and at least for now, with a small, intimate audience of friends and acquaintances. And so here we are with Sean Craver. He's a multi-instrumentalist and writer deep in the weeds trying to get his first novel published. 
and he recently finished his master's in theology. Yes. And he fronts tonight's band, the Ezra's, as well as another band, Appalachian Sky. So if you would like to introduce the band, please. Thank you, Jason. Yeah, I'm Sean Craver, and thank you everybody for coming. We'll put your hands together for Jason, and and like like he said, we've been talking about this for a year. And then after a year of talking, we said, hey, let's just do it. And here we are. And uh, we, we are the Ezra's on percussion and vocals is my good friend and longtime musical partner, Justin Wolf. Um, say hello to Justin. Hi. Uh, works at uh, KWCH on the bass, helped us put together the sound, sound engineer over there, Kurt Turner. And I'm Sean Craver, and we're going to do a song called Mavis Crowley. This is called Hypnochondra Cat. The cat against my hip on the couch she's destroying day by day, and she's 
purring while I think of Parkinson's disease and a story I once read about creativity and how small handwriting might be a sign of heightened intelligence. I look in my journal, wonder if my handwriting is small enough for at least some kind of genius, and if I can make it smaller but not so small it gives me Parkinson's. The cat stirs, casts a glance at me, purrs, I wonder if the desire for one thing brings about the other as a form of punishment. You think too much, the cat says, and now I'm worried about dementia. Speaking of dementia and other related uh, states of being, this is a song about my other girlfriend. <laughs> it's called Lucy Brown. that sort of go together if you really stretch. Marketing will get you everywhere. I am sitting behind the wheel of my second-hand dual-engine balsa wood drag racer of death, waiting my turn to launch. The Grim Reaper squeezes in and, dressed in hot pink and neon green, shows me his new 10,000-watt taser. We've been trying so hard, he says, to improve my image. He can be so obvious. How does he think I got here? Grim Reaper Cruise Line Special. One-way offer, each cabin decorated with a tiny pastel-colored plush toy Grim Reaper for snuggling. On your way to the live-action interactive zoo and drag racer of Death Spectacular, we fly 
you die. Just step on the gas, he says. It'll be fun. I have a tanning session at noon. Advice for the newly married. The sun is rising, she said one evening in spring. It might snow tomorrow. It's 70 degrees, he said, and we've been up all day. You don't love me, she said. Of course I do, he said, thinking of the terrible consequences of doing right, but only managing to slaughter the dog. Poor dog. You followed the devil, my darling. You left with him late last night You could not resist his long black coat Or his eyes filled with magic and light yesterday's jog and there is 
still the tight knot right in front of his left heel that he fears might be the first sign of an impending tear that will put him on crutches for six weeks and completely derail his steady efforts to get in shape. There's also the occasional rumble in his gut that makes him scan the restaurant for the quickest route to the restroom in case he needs to let loose another of the worst smelling farts he's ever had in his life. And what's worse is that once he gets in the bathroom to fart, he can spend 10 minutes in there doing only that. He figures that most men having a midlife crisis do so after having been married for two or three decades. They have kids in high school or college, and they and their wives have settled into ambivalence about each other's habits and pains and disintegrations. For them, it's just a phase they're going through. They'll buy a sports car or take up some young man's hobby like home brewing or model airplanes to get them out of the living room so they can fart and wheeze and feel some version of alive away from their job that has, in truth, gotten them in the habit of being away from their families. But what he can't figure out is how to have this midlife crisis to confront the impending demise of his body when he's never been married, never had kids, and only in the last few years stumbled backwards into a job that pays him what he should have been making a decade ago. What woman his own age would be interested in a man still living like a 20-something, complete with a futon and a hand-me-down bed and a homemade kitchen table? And what younger woman would choose an older man who didn't have his economic shit together. Through her eyes, won't he look like an immature failure who's chasing younger women because he's scared of women his own age? Either way, he sees himself as less than what he should be, less than desirable, foolish, pathetic. The thought of it nearly pushes him up from the restaurant booth and out the front door, but the woman is already coming over to the table. 10 years younger than he is, and she is still as shiny and bright-edged as a new penny. Put yourself out there, his merry friends tell him. You have a lot to offer. Christ, he thinks. I have to fart. <laughs> Jason Malott, yeah, give him a big hand. Put your hands together.
some things I'll miss. When I'm dead, I will miss pears and freshly sliced pineapple and peeling grapes with my teeth and the smell of a ripe cantaloupe carried indoors from my mother's garden. And I'll miss the sunlight on August baseball fields and the funk of dirt ground between my palms. And I will miss the small, warm bodies of sleeping cats and the smile a certain woman, now dead, once gave me as we held each other and caught our breath, the full moon, its job complete, watching us through the window. And and I will miss the smell of rain. Even now, I miss the smell of rain here where I'm trapped in this blind cubicle with all the other cattle, the milk of our lives drained out to make someone else richer while in trade. I get a few hours or so at home squeezing an orange that is only the memory of an orange I once had long ago before everything I will miss when I'm dead began its slow journey away from me.
she is no longer mine to remember this way, and yet there she is on the bright edge of my consciousness, and I am wondering if I can remember truly how she smelled or how her skin felt warm and damp even as the chill air around us raised goosebumps along her thigh where it rested over my waist, trapping me with its weight. And there was a way she orchestrated her hands when she talked as if she were painting the air before her with the things she was saying. Once in a car driving south under a storm-bruised sky, I watched her trace the pattern of a vibrantly blue cloud on the passenger side window, her hand part brush, part knife. Years after Celine died, I saw footage of a band from Iceland and I kept thinking the lead singer reminded me of someone. She was wearing a dress with tassels around the hem and thick-soled black boots. Then she started to sing, and her hands floated up, fluttering, painting the air in front of her the same way Celine would have. There aren't many memories I still have of her, and bringing them out to look at them is like unrolling the delicate remains of some ancient parchment. If I'm careless, if I'm too fast laying them out, the edges will crumble away. If I take the memories out in the wrong light, display them whenever asked, more of the finer details dissolve and start to fade. Soon there will be nothing left but the memory of memory's shape.
The Ezra's, everybody. <laughs> uh, this is from a, a longer piece that I've been working on for about a year now. It's called tentatively now The Poisoned Moon. Chapter One The Blanchard Bone. Etched into its surface is humanity's first expression of time before we understood counting. Once we were people of the moon. We lived along this serpentine coil of dark time and looked into the night sky to understand ourselves, to measure the weight of our lives, to quell the fear of our deaths. The cuts on the bone mark out two lunar months and track the new moon as it grows to fullness, withers away to darkness, and is reborn after three moonless nights. In the days when the moon was mysterious, the time of its absence was a time of anxiety. If the moon failed to return, failed to govern the rising and falling of the tides, to bring the dew in the mornings or the rain in the spring, to signify the time of sowing and the time of reaping, then surely the world would end. In the moon's waxing and waning, our ancestors began to understand the hidden eternity of the visible world, a return reflected in the seasons, the abundance of animals for the hunt, and the grain that was sown and harvested. But with solarization came counting and calendars that tracked our journey around the sun and gave us 11 new days. The difference between the solar and lunar years needed to be reconciled to keep the seasons and months aligned, and to every calendar devised has had to strike a balance between the time of the stars we swim among and the time of the Earth dancing with its satellite. Once this balance was the heartbeat of mysticism and faith, and the days and nights that made up the difference between sun and moon were set aside for the gods. In the Midwestern city where Selene lived and died, there are still hundreds of her artifacts orbiting that galaxy. Most now rest in her husband's bungalow or her sister's apartment. The most ancient, like anchor stones, are in her parents' house. A few are scattered among her friends' homes and apartments, paintings of moons and stars and nebulas, mythological tableaus, self-portraits, meaningful abstracts, still lives with flowers and vases, jewelry made of wood and steel and stones arranged like constellations, bands and bracelets woven from hemp, Handmade statuettes of female figures, mugs and goblets, some nestled in china cabinets, some perched on coffee tables as candy dishes or used as catch-alls on the bathroom counter. The artifacts of Celine Nicole Sweet Thompson's life appear, strangely, far beyond the small sphere of geography she inhabited. In Amsterdam, a necklace Celine made occasionally adorns a woman, and her lover likes to admire the way the polished amber pendant rests at the base of her throat. 
A quilt lays over the back of a couch in a house in Connecticut, forgotten by most except the cat, until a cold winter night when the furnace dies and a friend of Celine's since grade school pulls the blanket over her shoulders while waiting for the repairman to come, and she is warmed by the blanket and the sudden memories of her friend. That is the nature of made things, the paintings, jewelry, clay mugs and statues, scarves, mittens, blankets, drawings, dresses, and silk flowers left in the care of friends, family, or old lovers. All the things Celine made now orbit other people's gravity as they spiral out and away from her. Most days, the hand or eye passes over these things, rearranges them without notice, a trick of the mind, an arc of the day's thoughts successfully bearing the empty place in the world they now represent. Sometimes the trick fails, and a memory will flash between synapses, Celine's laugh, the touch of her hand, the scent of tea rose perfume, the taste of Earl Grey and honey. And all the kinetic energy in the world seems to spin down to stillness, this, consciously or subconsciously realized, is why we want to believe in ghosts, in an afterlife, in the soul's permanence, the eternal return, alternate universes. Somewhere, for all of them, Celine is alive. Somewhere, Celine is coming home from work to her husband. Somewhere, she holds a horse-haired brush, tip wet with ultramarine, still poised over an empty canvas. Somewhere, all possibilities are open. Truman's not sure what has made him stop here on the way home from Celine's parents' house, not even sure why he had taken West Street, which is far out of his way, other than he feels empty and alone and wants to be, at least for a moment, in the moonless dark without the traffic that crowds the southern parts of Seneca or Broadway or the freeway. He could have gone all the way at Meridian, but instead he turned left at 55th Street, away from the high school Celine had attended, and drove another mile to where West Street terminates. There are no streetlights so far south, only a few distant farmhouses and Wichita's orange glow back to the east like a false sunrise. On the south end of town, West Street marks the city's edge, and over the years it has never seemed to change. The same old darkness hides farms and fields and the sprawling ranch houses belonging to people who've moved here to be away from the appearance of a city without actually leaving it. He sits quietly, replaying the trip again and wondering why. Since Celine's death, everything has felt dull except for things he doesn't want to feel anymore. Loss, pain, sadness, grief, loneliness. He can name them and has done so repeatedly to those willing to listen, but the words he speaks and that swirl along his higher thoughts are nothing but thin, hieroglyphic representations of what has taken up residence in his chest. When the words don't feel hollow in his mouth, they feel melodramatic, like the kind of things people would mock him for as sentimental or maudlin, especially in a man, especially in one who has always worn his faith openly, but never gaudily, never ignorantly. When he had first met Celine and her collection of local artists, actors, musicians, and misfits that were her friends, he had done his best to accept them, even when they were obviously nervous and suspicious in his presence. It was easy to discern how they saw him, a silent, judgmental churchgoer, hoping to rescue Celine from a life of sin. Their eyes always drifted down to the tiny silver cross he wore around his neck as if it were a sandwich board advertising the end of the world. They looked to be waiting for a sermon or a scornful glance. He could see their barely repressed eye rolls when he took time to pray to himself before dinner or when he would refuse the alcohol offered to him at a party. Celine's best friend, April, found it especially difficult to mask her reactions to the evidence of his faith. Given time, they would have seen that he would never preach to them, would never try to convert them, and would never condemn them the way so many of the people he went to church with might have. He knew there was little he could do to alter the behavior of those who felt a compulsion to spread God's word against the listener's will, to lead with threats of punishment and damnation, recrimination and fear, and there was little he could do to change Celine's friends' minds except continue to be quiet, polite, and inoffensive. But what would they think if they could see him now, sitting in his car in the parking lot of a strip club? Would all of the sympathy Celine's friends have offered since her death vanish? Even though he dislikes the sad, sympathetic looks they have for him now, those looks are better than the suspiciousness he gathered when Celine was alive. 
They aren't bad people. They aren't evil or sinister. They've simply been made suspicious of him by those who obsess too much over God's wrath instead of God's grace. Whether they believe it or not, he believes as strongly as he believes anything that God's grace is upon them, and so he won't judge them. It would be impolite to hold their suspicions against them, especially now that he has come to cherish their presence and their stories about Selene as living memories of her. But this, sitting here in the parking lot of a place dedicated to the idea of lust, would they see the struggle inside him? Would they understand the pull of certain urges that Selene awakened in him? Would they count him among those hypocrites who demand others be pure and virtuous while they themselves slink off in secret to commit the acts they've condemned for others? There's so many of his perceptions of the world that now, after Selene, have changed, but he is afraid to talk about or doesn't know how to talk about with Selene's friends. He certainly can't mention such things to people at church. How can he explain the astonishment and euphoria that overtook him when Selene was lying naked beside him or when, in the morning, he'd glimpse her stepping from the shower, slick and glossy, the water making her tattoos, which he once hated shine and glisten. He had loved the way she could surprise him when they made love, and yet he feared knowing how she had come to learn such things. At the time they married, he felt he had known her more deeply than he had known anyone, and yet, since her death, mysterious facets have been revealed to him with every story her friends tell. It's as if she'd been a hundred different people in her life, and the version she'd presented to him was a reduced, trimmed, abbreviated, and circumscribed version that he had chosen to believe was complete. These thoughts have perhaps been with him all day, even before making the visit to her parents' house. It's been over three years since she died, and even now it's not uncommon for him to go through most of a day under some invisible weight only to come home, see something of Celine's, and realize the weight upon him has been his grief and loneliness and this guilty, shameful anger he harbors at God for having taken her away from him. What darkness, what devil made him turn the wheel and point himself here of all places? Celine was never a stripper, although she knew women who were. She never frequented places like this, although he knows some of her friends did, and maybe they still do. Since Celine's death, how many times has he made the drive to and from her parents' house without making the turn to come here? The notion had never even crossed his mind. He has felt this physical loneliness before, felt this wide, impossible separation from Celine in every part of his body. He has awakened some mornings, having dreamed so vividly and intensely of her that he had ejaculated in his sleep like a teenager. Has his nervous system operated like some hedonistic compass, threatening to send him over the edge of the world because the sex dreams about his deceased wife are too much to bear? There had been so much more to her, so much more to them together than that. Their vacations to Colorado, their plans for children, their love of old movies, the quiet Saturday mornings over coffee, the peaceful, pious Sundays in church. He knows she took more pleasure in the light through the stained glass windows and the motions of the rituals than in anything Reverend Dunning ever said. Maybe the light on Sundays, too, had become his greater joy. Simply being in a holy place with Celine, even one that was as small and plain as their neighborhood church, was as awe-inspiring as the grandest cathedral because, through her, he could see the mystery and beauty in a shaft of light turned ochre or azure through stained glass, how it illuminated the galaxies of hovering dust in the colored air. The turbulence inside him starts to ebb away, easing the anxious knot of sadness in his chest. He leans back in the driver's seat, looks up through the moonroof at the clear, moonless sky with only a few stars and planets able to pierce the city's light pollution. He tries to pick out the few constellations he remembers Celine showing him such a long time ago. Maybe his view is too restricted, or maybe it's his position on the earth, but even though he's only a few miles from home, he can't find a single constellation he knows, and somehow that seems to unravel the last of his anxiety, as if the unfamiliarity of the sky above him has forgiven him. Taking his eyes from the sky, resigned to the sadness, his hand already searching for the key in the ignition, and he sees a woman in the parking lot. She has appeared out of a car, the light from the marquee catching her as she turns, closes the car door. She is hurrying now up to the entrance where she pauses to pull open the front door. She has dark, 
curly hair that hangs past her shoulders, and there's a magnesium streak rising back from her forehead over her right eye. Her resemblance to Celine is as strong as if they were twins, and all the turbulence returns, sudden and bright. He takes his keys from the ignition and leaves the car, weaving through the parking lot to the entrance. He's not sure what he'll do when he gets inside. He only wants a closer look at the woman. He enters the building and stops, unsure what to do or if he even wants to be there. A bouncer stands behind a narrow counter, guarding a black cash box and a door with a sign on it that reads employees only. A flickering ATM is jammed in the corner across from the bouncer, and music pulses and pounds at Truman from the short, dark hallway that leads into the club. Five dollar cover, brother. He can't remember if he has cash on him and is about to back out the door when someone comes in behind him. Quickly, he steps forward, tugs out his wallet. There's cash in it, but he can't remember how much. He fumbles until he finds a ten, hands it to the bouncer, and gets five ones back. Have fun, brother. He steps into the short, dark hallway, music, and a smell that seems to be a mix of perfume, sweat, and bleach folds around him. He can't tell how much of the thrumming in his chest is from the music or his nerves until the music stops, replaced by applause and a few catcalls and whistles. The vibration is all his. A man's voice booms from the sound system. Let's hear it for Cindy! He turns the corner into the club's main room and sees a naked woman on stage, trapped in a spotlight as she bends over to pick up money, her backside to the crowd, legs stiff and straight. He stands, dumbfounded at this tableau. After she collects all the money, she darts backstage briefly and reappears with a spray bottle and towel, still naked except for her high-heeled shoes. Quickly, she sprays and wipes down the two poles before leaving the stage again. The spotlight goes out and the house lights come up a little. It's still hard to see much of anything in the dark beyond the stage except the bar and the glowing sign above another ATM. The men's faces in the audience and the waitresses scattered about are mostly hidden, but he feels like all of them can see him clearly. The man who had come in behind him shuffles past. Don't block up the door, Stretch, he says, before joining two men at a table near the stage. Buy the girls a drink, the DJ says. Tip your waitresses and get ready for Zoe. He closes his eyes for a moment and tries to pray. He needs to turn around and walk out the front door, but his legs still feel rooted to the floor, stiff as wood. Whoever he'd seen in the parking lot, whatever about her that reminded him of Celine is an illusion, he tells himself, a wishful fantasy. He already suspects the worst, that she works here and will be up on stage soon, and he doesn't want to see it, doesn't want whatever she does up there to be paired with his memories of Celine. The stiffness in his knees ebbs away, the rooted feeling eases, and he takes the first step only to walk into a new wall of sound and light. Zoe appears on stage as if she's materialized from the spotlight, dressed in a shimmering tight black dress that must be silk or satin. She has her hair up and a feather boa over her shoulders. Her pale skin and the magnesium flash in her dark hair reflect the spotlight like the moon reflects the sun. She struts down stage, takes a hold of the brass pole and spins, head back, free arm curling out, swinging back, sliding down her body. He is lost, trapped, heartbroken. Zoe could be Celine's twin. She walks up stage now, the backless dress cut so low the cleft at the top of her buttocks shows. Her back is a nearly pale expanse up to where her shoulders are covered by the long feather boa, and then she lets it fall to the floor. There, on her left shoulder blade, is a single tattoo. He can't see it very well at this distance, and then it's out of sight as she turns to face the crowd. Its shape and its colors remind him of the red, gold, and pearl-white dragon Celine had tattooed on her left shoulder blade. He takes a seat at a table near the stage and watches the woman dance, waiting for another chance to see the tattoo. When she turns again, slower this time, Truman can see the tattoo. Against his memory, it appears to be identical to the one Celine had. And now, as she pivots and turns again in her dance, she is smiling, and the resemblance to Celine is stronger, uncanny. Quickly, he stands up from the table and hurries outside to his car. And we're going to have the Ezra's again.
Well, let's hear it for Jason. That was that was a great piece. I, w I was completely into that story. That was good writing. Yeah, feel free to just get up and mill about and uh, talk about. We're going to play some music and um, have some snacks for us. So Kurt was uh, quietly slicing into that block of cheese over there during that. Not bad. <laughs> beer. As Kurt says, beer is one of his favorites. Good mind. Let's do uh, the Trail of Gold.
Before the banks owned us all I lay awake in the middle of the night Listening to the ghosts in the walls They whisper liberty, she's like angels fire She goes forward with a shout The Eagle's Tower is barely standing still Don't let them put the fire out
This episode, Outrider Live, Words and Music, was recorded in front of a live audience and features poetry and prose by me, your host, Jason Quinn Malott, and live music by Wichita band The Ezra's. Event sound was engineered by Kurt Turner, and the podcast was edited and produced by Heather Ann Eden. The Outrider Podcast will be back with a six-part series on crime and detective fiction called Bad Business. And there'll be more Outrider Live shows featuring great poets and writers performing with local musical acts.